I'd like to address the world through the medium of the latest wonderful invention so that my voice, like my great show, will reach future generations and be heard centuries after I have joined the great and, as I believe, happy majority. Welcome to Becoming Barnum, the journey to fame and fortune, a podcast presented by the Barnum Museum in Bridgeport, Connecticut. The Barnum Museum has a unique treasure in its collection, a 750-page copybook of letters written by Phineas Taylor Barnum when he was traveling in Europe in the 1840s, introducing his young protege, General Tom Thumb, to millions of ordinary people, as well as royalty and high society. These letters offer a unique glimpse into the life of P.T. Barnum as a husband, father, mentor, and entrepreneur. Join us as we travel back in time and learn about the real person behind the legendary P.T. Barnum through his own words. If you enjoy this episode, we would appreciate it if you would subscribe to our podcast to help our rankings and support the Barnum Museum. And now, on with the show. Going it like a rush. Going it like a rush is the curious expression P.T. Barnum used to describe the success of General Tom Thumb's performances in England and Scotland when he wrote his friend in Paris, Dr. Brewster, on January 20, 1846. Despite starting the return tour of the United Kingdom with a cold that kept him off the stage for a few days, the eight-year-old boy soon recovered, and Barnum declared him to be hearty as a buck. Barnum told Brewster of the plan to return to London from Scotland soon, where they would stay until May, before dashing into the provincial towns till July, at which time we proposed departing for the land of peace, plenty, and steady habits. The latter denotes the state of Connecticut, which is still known by the moniker the land of steady habits. Barnum himself seemed to be feeling fit once again, and was pleased to tell Brewster, I am enjoying myself bravely this winter, though I should prefer being with my family. With the acquisition of two or three museums in America unfolding thanks to Fortis Hitchcock's diligence, he had every incentive to get back in the saddle after coping with debilitating homesickness during his travels in France. Another January 20th letter that Barnum wrote from Scotland to France this one to a Mr. Ouet, catches us up on the status of several novelties and attractions Barnum had commissioned for his American museum, including the statues he wanted to install along its roofline. Concerning the latter, he explained to Ouet, I have before spoken to Monsieur Jean about some statues to place on the top of my museum. I want them of such a size as will make them appear the size of life from the street. He was, however, annoyed that Monsieur Jean had replied with a letter in French and told Huet, Monsieur Jean has written me the enclosed letter. I wish you would hand it to him and tell him that I cannot fully understand it, and that I would therefore feel obliged if he will write me in English. He has a person who writes English, and as I have no interpreter now to help me read French, I get bothered with a French letter. In previous letters sent to American Museum Manager Hitchcock, Barnum had asked about getting the height of the building from the street to roofline in order to calculate the size of the figures. Though long delayed in answering the question, Hitchcock apparently came through with it as Barnum relayed the details to Huet. 
They will stand 72 English feet high from the sidewalk and the street. I do not know yet how many I want, but it will be from 10 to 20. I wish Monsieur Jean to inquire and let me know the price of these statues. Barnum asked for cost estimates based on using three different materials. The first would have the statues roughly cut of marble, the second roughly cut of granite, and the third would have them cast in some kind of composition which will resist the weather. On a practical note, he added, I think the latter would be very cheap and would perhaps answer my purpose. Barnum had already commissioned an anatomical Venus, a lifelike attraction that was simultaneously seductive and repellent, as its purpose was to show realistically modeled organs in the open cavity of a beautiful human female, all made of wax. In his letter to Huet, Barnum advised, When the wax Venus is finished, I wish to have her very carefully packed and sent in the same manner to Hitchcock, with very great care, as a small thump would spoil the whole of it. He also inquired about progress on the panorama painting depicting Napoleon's funeral. Pray, do you know whether Monsieur Lambert is getting along with the diorama of Napoleon's funeral? His address is 14 Rue Saint-Pierre Montmartre. Barnum had concluded it was better to commission his own than overpay for one that had already been heavily exhibited and was showing a lot of wear. The panorama painting was sure to be profitable, but as for other paintings, Barnum had decided to backtrack his idea of opening a gallery in New York. In a November 29, 1845 letter, he had expressed his enthusiasm to Hitchcock for such an endeavor, and was in the process of having masterworks in French museums copied. But his trusted manager must have dissuaded him, for Barnum told Huet, I have heard from America that it will be bad speculation for me to attempt to form a picture gallery there, especially with copies. When, therefore, the artists have finished my pictures, you will please tell them that I want no more, until I have sent those to America on trial. Making good on those he had already ordered, he wrote, The 1,500 francs which Stratton handed you was to pay to the artists when they have finished the pictures satisfactorily. When the pictures are finished, I wish my friends Draper and Company of 30 Rue Hauteville to ship them to New York, directed, as usual, to Monsieur F. Hitchcock, American Museum, New York. On the same day, January 20th, Barnum sent a brief note to his friend Thomas Brattel, a painter in London, to say, I am anxiously awaiting the proofs of the new play. Barnum had commissioned the popular writer Albert Smith to write a play for General Tom Thumb, and presumably he expected to get it on stage when the entourage returned to London. Two weeks earlier, he had written Brattel to let him know that Smith agreed to give you the copy for the new play and have you print it by degrees and forward proofs to me. I hope he will do so. Barnum would thus be sending more business to Brattel, who had recently been asked to print up souvenir booklets for General Tom Thumb. Barnum's tone was sardonic when he informed Brattel, I enclose you the book corrected and amended. Mr. Stratton has just discovered that in it I am called the guardian of General Tom Thumb, and he says, By God, it shall be took out, or my boy shall never sell a damned book. You might as well say he has got no father and be done with it. Now, if it should be said that he had no father, or at least not much of one, it would not be far out of the way. But I pray you sink the guardian, for truth to tell, the father needs one much more than the son. The topic of the conjoined infants in Paris, whom Barnum had so desperately wanted to exhibit, takes a different turn in the letter to Huet, for he says he has heard nothing about them from Monsieur Pinta, 
a professor turned would-be showman who was employed by him in France. But it is no matter. I am not half so anxious about it as I was. Not long after this, Barnum learned the twins had passed away. A likely reason for Barnum's change in focus was that he was now intensely occupied in planning for the Baltimore Museum, which his uncle Allenson Taylor had just acquired and in which Barnum was to be an equal owner. They were to share the $9,000 cost. That was for collection only, not including the building. He told his uncle, I believe the investment, if the concern is judiciously managed, to be a capital one, and that this will be at last the solid foundation on which you will build a fortune. At all events, if any men living can make money there, it is us. First, because you will personally attend to the affairs, and see that not a penny is lost through trusting the money drawer in dishonest hands, nor not a shilling expended which is not judiciously laid out. And second, because I have facilities for furnishing attractions which no other man possesses, and which first, having received the stamp of approbation from New York papers, will go down well in Baltimore. In the 12-page letter to Allenson Taylor, begun on January 21st, Barnum shares abundant advice and opinions on just about every aspect of running the museum. However, in this episode, we'll focus on the comments pertaining to attractions. As he advised his uncle, I think that dissolving views, the microscope, and the other optical instruments which are now exhibiting in my American museum would always do well with you. If you think so, say the word and I will get them in London. Though, by the way, if you can find a proper man in America to make the gas and exhibit dissolving views, perhaps Hitchcock can spare sufficient views to give you a start, and perhaps also lanterns can be bought in New York. You can learn about that and let me know what to do. I can get a good man in London for about $8.50 per week to go to America and show views, microscope, etc., and make the gas for the lanterns. He is also a bird stuffer. I can also send gratis a good glass blower if you want, which you do if you have not one. It is ironic that Barnum, who often advertised the very great expense of the novelties he purchased, admitted to Taylor, One grand secret of success is to make the most of everything which you provide for the public. It is not the most expensive attractions which pay best, but quite the contrary as a general thing. As examples, he mentioned a model of Dublin, similar to the model of Venice he had just acquired, and his Gypsy Girl, which was an automaton. Barnum offered advice about the latter, noting, My machinery for the Gypsy Girl might, I think, tell to advantage in your museum. If you thought best not to exhibit it as a fortune teller, merely exhibit it as a mysterious curiosity under the name of the Invisible Lady. He also recommended enlivening the Baltimore Museum's exterior by copying his successes at the American Museum, such as the Drummond Light mounted on the roof. If I recollect right, the top of your museum may be made into a promenade and garden, a la the American Museum, in summer. And by all means, don't fail to have a good high flagpole and some big flags. And if you think best, have a larger lantern to put on the flagpole and pull to the top brilliantly illuminated at night, like mine. Indeed, I fancy there are a number of good dodges about the American Museum that can be profitably copied in ours. For truth to say, I never yet have seen a place of amusement so well calculated to attract the beholders outside and please those inside as the American Museum in New York, and it has not begun to be what it shall be if I live and have my health. Barnum famously employed a band of musicians to play outside on the balconies of his American Museum, 
but while in Europe, he got the idea to replace them with a mechanized music maker. Though not entirely automatic, he liked the idea that he would only have to pay a boy to operate it, instead of paying several musicians. But at the time he was writing his uncle, he did not know if his hunch that this was a smart investment was correct. He told Taylor, I sent a set of mechanical trumpets to Hitchcock to take the place of the band outside the museum. They are worked by a boy who only has to turn a crank. If they are as good as I believe, a set would do well for the outside of the Baltimore Museum. You can learn from Hitchcock and let me know. Barnum's enthusiasm continued as he gleefully told Taylor he now had under contract a couple of remarkably fine, handsome, fat children, brothers whom he would send to New York in April with their mother and two siblings. He would pay the family $5 per week for a year, and would also pay for their clothing, food, and laundry, and passages to and from America, in steerage. Finally, he assured his uncle that, Any other novelties which I can pick up cheap, I shall be able to secure, and if they can be hired at a round price to peel occasionally, that will take so much off the cost to our museum. Next, we'll explore Barnum's secrets to success, management advice that he shared liberally with his new partner, Allenson Taylor. We hope you're enjoying the episode. If you want to support us, consider subscribing to our podcast and leaving us a review. It really helps us out. Now, let's dive into the next segment, How to Do Business in Baltimore. P.T. Barnum's 12-page letter to his uncle Allenson Taylor, dated January 21, 1846, and written in Dunfermline, Scotland, gives us a lot to unpack. There is no small talk taking up space on those pages. Earlier, we learned about Barnum's ideas for attractions, and there are even more we did not cover, such as plays. And this time, we'll see what he had to say on subjects pertaining to business operations in their venture as equal partners of the Baltimore Museum. Barnum had a great deal of advice to dole out, but aware that his maternal uncle deserved the level of respect accorded someone older than himself, he explained, Excuse this apparent egotism in giving advice to one so much my senior in years, and very superior in knowledge. What I write is at least well meant. At times, the relationship between them was uneasy, with Barnum never quite sure what his uncle was planning next and fearing that he would make a serious error in judgment when it came to business matters. After learning he was about to become a partner, he wrote, As I am getting so many irons in the fire, I wish that each business shall be kept as plain and simple as possible, devoid of all intricacies, so that it can be settled without difficulty, either with me or any other person in case of my or your own death. Some of his advice to Taylor was specific and detailed, but he also offered standard counsel of the period, though he admitted his own American museum manager was a far better practitioner than himself. By all means, let no debt stand against the museum. Settle your printers, bill posters, and every other bill, except for yearly advertisements, gas, and rent, every week, and the other bills above named punctually when due. Let everything thus be in order, for there is nothing so pleasant in business affairs as a good and rigid system. Something, by the way, which I too much lack myself, but which Hitchcock has to a charm, and which every person should have. Having himself been a newspaper man in the early 1830s, Barnum was quick to start off by reminding Taylor, 
it is hardly necessary for me to say that the first and one of the most important steps to be taken is to secure the favor and good feeling of the Baltimore press. No matter how small a circulation a paper may have, if it is large enough to support itself, it can help or hurt us. Free admissions and a little courtesy with editors and reporters will go farther than money. There's nothing, as fictitious Yankee peddler Sam Slick says, like the soft soda when not put on too thick. He also recommended having an annual contract for advertising, as it would prove to be a better bargain. And he directed that the advertising should not be limited to promoting the attractions at the museum. A clever tactic would be to also promote the physical improvements they made. While cautioning Taylor about spending too much on the latter, Barnum realized there was an investment value beyond the obvious. Opportunities to promote these expenses to their advantage, the more pumped up the better, awakening the public to his generous outlay of dollars to give people a comfortable experience, as well as entertaining them. Make your improvements gradually, beginning with those which are most needed, and try to earn the money along, as fast as you expand it, and faster if possible. And above all things, let not a paintbrush touch the museum, nor a hammer be struck there, without having it fully announced in papers and bills, in order that the public shall see with what great liberality the new managers are catering for their amusement, comfort, and convenience. Barnum had little respect for Rembrandt Peel and his partner Seawright, described as a fool or knave, from whom the Baltimore Museum collections had been purchased for $9,000. His disdain may have stemmed partly from a neglect of physical improvements. Taylor must have described some of the deficiencies in a letter to his nephew, for Barnum replied to him, No doubt, as you say, many improvements can be made to great advantage, and they must be made. If you get a five- or ten-year lease of the museum for $1,200 and can then get a corresponding lease of the necessary space adjoining so that the rent will not go too high, you had better do so, if you think best. But look sharp when you commence making alterations and repairs, or you will find that it will eat us all up. The expenses of such things are awful unless you have it done by responsible men and by the job. Barnum also expressed the need for prudence and caution in regard to managing the ticket office, which suggests ticketing irregularities and theft were common ways that businesses like his lost money. He stated emphatically, I have long been satisfied that the only possible safe way for a place of public amusement is to have two persons constantly engaged as ticket sellers and receivers. Never was so great a temptation to steal money a little every day as at the office of a place of amusement where there is no check upon the money receiver. This world is so bad that in my opinion there are but few who could long resist such a temptation, and it is wicked, wrong, and foolish to tempt even those few. The only effectual way to keep people honest is to prevent the possibility of their being otherwise. I hope that you will establish the most rigid rules in relation to your money affairs. Repeating his desire to have everything done in a straightforward fashion that ensured both honesty and accuracy, he added, And therefore, it is best to have everything done in a plain, business-like manner. You taking receipts and vouchers for all monies paid out, and above all, establishing such a plan in regard to the receipt of money at the door as to place it beyond all question, that there is no smuggling or cheating there. Perhaps Barnum had run into difficulties of this sort before, or knew about them from others' experiences, for he also warned, You ought to trust no one person living with the receiving of money, as it is impossible that you can always take money. 
And in fact, as your time can always be much more profitably employed than in the mere mechanical business of selling or taking tickets, I propose that you never bother with it, but that you do what always ought to be done at any place of amusement. That is, have a good set of tickets printed on thick paper, manufactured specially like those at the American Museum, and have those tickets always locked as closely as if they were money. Then always have a ticket seller and ticket receiver. If one or both are females, it's all the better, for they have less temptations to steal, having less use for money than men. And let them be such persons as there could be no possible danger of collusion between them. Then there should be a regular counting of money and tickets each night, and if seller and receiver are both vigilant, the money and tickets would always correspond. In a rare expression of confidence in General Tom Thumb's father, Sherwood Stratton, whom Barnum had employed at the American Museum prior to the European Tour Partnership, he described Stratton's competence in managing the ticket sales. Stratton has sold tickets to the amount of $150,000 or more, and the whole difference between his receipts and the tickets have not varied $5. Day after day and month after month, he has taken from $200 to $1,100 per day, averaging $400, without varying tickets and money a single penny for my ticket receiver is like a hawk, and not a person can get past him without giving up the ticket. Not everyone paid admission to see the American Museum. As Barnum admitted, One great fault of mine has been allowing too many deadheads. He advised his uncle, I hope you will avoid this, except to the press, for it is a double evil. It makes the museum appear cheap and common to those who go in free, and it makes others begrudge to pay their money when they know that many of their acquaintances get the same thing for nothing. None appreciate performances so well as those who pay for them. Barnum also mentioned another arrangement he'd had at the American Museum. If you have a place for a small refreshment stand, I would advise you to give it to my old albino lady and give her husband some employee about the museum at $4 per week, provided she would attend it herself. In previous letters to others, Barnum had expressed feelings of guilt about letting the poor woman go, saying he had done so when he felt forced by the landlord to rehire the experienced, trustworthy Francis at an above-average salary for a female ticket manager. If Taylor would hire the albino lady, he could also employ the husband, as Barnum had done. He tried to persuade Taylor, noting, She is a good attraction, for she costs nothing, and I always regretted letting her go especially as I had her for less than nothing, she paying me a rent for the bar or refreshment stand, no liquors. William, her husband, is steady and faithful, good to distribute bills, see to the gas, stages, etc. Barnum fully intended that attractions he purchased for his American Museum in New York would make their way down to Baltimore when the time was right, but they would not be sent free of charge. Again, stressing the desire that business between himself as proprietor of the American Museum and Taylor would be fair and transparent, he wrote, Hitchcock must spare all novelties which he can, and the Baltimore Museum must be charged merely what they cost me, that is to say, the interest and wear and tear of the articles used, making proper allowance for the decrease in value owing to the wearing off of the novelty. All I want, you know, is what is right and just, I want you to reciprocate in all the advantages which the Baltimore Museum can derive from any facilities which I can afford it, always keeping me whole, however, in furnishing said facilities. Barnum recognized that his uncle might decide he wanted a different business partner. Their relationship, as inferred from Barnum's correspondence, 
often involved his having to backtrack and explain intentions and motives that his uncle had misunderstood, and not just on the subject of religion. Barnum therefore made it clear to Taylor that, should he wish to find a different partner, he was free to do so. If you prefer at present to make any other arrangement with any other person, I give full liberty to you to do so. All that I could in justice ask, or all that I should desire, would be the money which I have laid out. I am candid in this, and I mention it not because I see anything in your letters that would indicate that you prefer any other arrangement to being equal partners with me, but to give you full liberty to make any other arrangement if, perchance, which I do not believe, you would prefer to do so. Interestingly, Barnum mentioned that Moses Kimball, his showman competitor friend in Boston, had approached him about borrowing $25,000 to build a new building, a very large sum in those days. Perhaps Barnum sensed the possibility that his uncle might approach Kimball as a potential partner. I suspect that probably would not have sat well with him, despite what he wrote about giving his uncle free reign to choose another partner. Referring to Kimball's request for a loan, he noted, Kimball is illy prepared to buy the Baltimore if you wished him to do so, which I trust you do not. Finally, with optimism and hope, if not full confidence, Barnum assured his uncle, I think that you are the man to guard against great expenses, and if you do this and go on saving and hoarding every dollar that can be made, the time is not far distant when a nest egg will have been laid, by which will be of great service to yourself and family. But for the first four years, you must live close, if you intend to be rich, as I intend you shall be. And by doing so, the result is sure. We must all creep before we walk. Economy, industry, and perseverance combined will work wonders. As they did for Barnum. His recipe for financial success is encapsulated in that last sentence. Practicing economy, industry, and perseverance are traits he held close, and continued to live by in the decades of his life ahead, in all his various career endeavors. Thank you for listening to this episode of Becoming Barnum, The Journey to Fame and Fortune. Support for this episode is provided by the City of Bridgeport American Rescue Plan Act Funds, Peoples United, a division of M&T Bank, and the Connecticut Humanities and National Endowment for the Humanities. The podcast was produced by the Barnum Museum and based on the blog series Barnum's Letters from Abroad by Adrian St. Pierre. Editing and sound design are by Rui Pinna, and narration is by William Saris. Kathleen Marr is our executive director, and John Swing is our COO. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast and visit our YouTube channel for behind-the-scenes presentations of our collections and more stories about the legendary showman. Connect with us on social media and let us know what you think. Please tune in next time as we continue our adventures with P.T. Barnum.